Support for the Claim of Stories podcast and the following message comes from 99designs by Vistaprint. With a worldwide community of more than 150,000 talented freelance designers, 99designs by Vistaprint is the global creative platform that makes it easy for small businesses to work with creative experts and build their brand through custom, memorable design. Learn more at 99designs.com. So tell me about this side of life, right? Because this is a whole nother interest, right? Like this is like, it's not finance. It's not working in nightlife. Now we're talking about sneakers. We're talking about streetwear. What was like, what was that spark of inspiration? So I, you know, I've always been into fashion. And when I was working in, you know, in nightlife, I basically subleased a space in the back of a store called The Attic, which was a women's boutique. And this is back when contemporary was... So I'm talking Ed Hardy, mm-hmm. Rock and Republic, mm-hmm. Salvage. The category that we're in now didn't really exist, right? So there's luxury, streetwear, you know, was probably emerging at that time. But there was other graphic t-shirt lines, but it was never considered to be streetwear. This concept of like an off-white or, you know, and I hate to use this term, lux street, right? Mm-hmm. But it's not necessarily luxury. It's not necessarily <laughs> contemporary. It's you know, a lot of it's graphics driven. It's really expensive. So it's juries. I, I, I don't know what the right term is. I don't think anyone has coined it yet. Yeah. But um, so, but that category didn't exist. So this is Claim of Stories, a show about leading and emerging BIPOC creatives and how they were able to claim their dream careers. Tell me where you want to go, where you want to be. I can help you dream a seat, get you on your feet. I'm Bima, and on today's show, we talk to entrepreneur Ajay Bori, owner of streetwear shop Feature. First-generation Indian, Ajay grew up in Northern California. The child of a traditional arranged marriage that didn't last, his mother divorced his father, but that didn't stop her from building a life for Ajay and his brother. After Ajay's mom joined the Air Force, they moved from low-income housing in California to the small town of Marquette, Michigan. As soon as they got to the Midwest, Ajay began to rebel and got into a little trouble. His mom would move a couple of times to keep Ajay safe, even moving them to Tokyo to finish high school. While attending college in Reno, he started bartending and working at an insurance company. Feeling trapped by his day job, he would dive headfirst into the nightlife and decided to move to Vegas. Despite the hustle and demands of the club scene, he returned to Reno to help out friends with their business ventures. Even opening a boutique turned personal shopping service, The Attic, and then transitioned into sneakers. Feature a venture he pitched to three other partners and opened in the middle of the 2010 recession. In our conversation ahead, Ajay shares a story about his mother deciding to leave her arranged marriage to his dad. My mom came to Grass Valley, California in 76, um, definitely fresh off the boat. And, you know, back in the late 70s, even into the 80s, arranged marriage was still a pretty prominent thing in Indian culture. And so... Uh, my dad had already been in the U.S. for a couple years um, and was already working and somewhat successful. He had a pretty big real estate business, owned a couple Dairy Queens. And so lo and behold, my mom comes over in 76. You know, my brother was born in 78. But along that, you know, couple year 
past, my, my dad started deviating um, in terms of getting heavily involved in drugs and partying and drinking. And it was really, you know, in March of 81, I was three weeks old. I was preemie. And my mom decided to separate from my dad because it got to a place where um, things were just going completely south in terms of, you know, losing properties, you know, losing business. And I'm sure that there was some other stuff that my mom really shielded me from mm-hmm. and probably still does to this day. Still yeah, just you because, don't know all the details. Yeah. She probably wants you to keep a certain image of your father. Um, yeah, I think to an extent, but I also, I think she wants to keep a certain image of like protection still. It's that motherly instinct that, you know, does, does my son, even though he's 40 years old, need to know that, you know, my dad did X, Y, and Z, mm-hmm. or is it water on the bridge? And my mom did a good job of doing her best to shield us from as much as possible growing up. Um, so again, you know, it's, it's 81, you know, my mom separates from my dad. I'm three weeks old. Hmm. Obviously, she's literally, for all intents and purposes, you know, three years off the boat, right? Wow. So, and did did y'all have any family here? Is she here by herself at that point? Or so, like- pretty isolated in Northern California. So, she had a brother that lived in La Crosse, Wisconsin, and then another brother that lived in D.C. at wow. the time. So completely spread out. Yeah, and I think the thing that was interesting is, you know, in Indian culture, you don't, marriage is marriage. It mm-hmm. wasn't. You know, culturally, it's not like the U.S. where you can get married and you can get divorced six months later and no one looks at you like at all. it's a big deal. Mm-hmm. It's like, you got divorced. That might happen two or three more times <laughs> in your life, right? <laughs> like, you know, no one thinks yeah. about it. But in Indian culture, it's very shameful and it's, you know, looked down upon, especially when a marriage was arranged. And so I think there was a moment where my mom, you know, was pretty isolated. I think that there may not have been as much support at the time, mm-hmm. right? And I think later down the road, you know, she was getting some help from, from family. But I think at the time, you know, there's this whole concept of like, what are you doing? This is wrong. You mm-hmm. need to figure this out. Mm-hmm. You need to you go need to work it, it out. Yeah. Like, this isn't, you know, how things are done in our mm-hmm. culture. So, you know, luckily we ended up in, you know, I call them my aunts and uncles, but, you know, somehow we were able to connect with a great group of people, you know, that, to this day have been in i've known them for 40 years wow. you know uh, my uh grandma Maryam and, and grandpa ernie were you know my caucasian grandparents <laughs> right but they were quakers and they met my mom in the hospital mm. and from that time on they always took us in you know and just became the family that you know definitely near yeah you know i've been my aunt maggie my aunt dorothy my aunt norma owned a montessori school which is where we attended <laughs> you know so all these people kind of you know, they say it takes a village, and the I mean, reality is, is we ended up finding a village that was in our village, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so again, you know, it's it's eighty one. You know, we're on welfare at this point, mm. right? Living in low income housing. In fact, you know, I remember crazy memories of like playing in the backyard and climbing over the fence, and there was a SWAT team, you know, literally what? going into my neighbor's house because he was having like a hostage showdown after he beat his oh, girl and. My- I remember my mom coming out and grabbing me off the fence and like running oh, me back in. And, you know, I thought it was like G.I. Joe. I was like, you didn't is, know that you're a kid. Yeah, I'm like, a, like, you know, oh, young kid. Yeah. So, so, you know, we're living in Section 8, you know, low income housing in Grass Valley. And my mom starts taking classes part time, right? Mm-hmm. Because at the time I couldn't be in daycare. And mm-hmm. mind you, my mom's highly educated. So she had a teaching degree in India and a master's in music. Oh, but wow. obviously, neither of those really translated. Transferred over. 
So when, US, yeah. yeah, like she's obviously fresh with boat, she can't teach, mm-hmm. you know, and music, masters in music was on the sitar, which is like, <laughs> you know, which is obviously a very cool instrument, but right. it's not like Most the drums. Most Americans have no idea. Yeah. yeah you know, right. so, so she starts going back to school part-time, taking classes, um, because obviously I couldn't, she had to watch me during the day. Right. And then it was really like 84, I think, um, is when I actually started going to daycare to my aunt Norma's Montessori school. Mm-hmm. And at that point, she went back to school full time. Yeah. And she graduated in 87 with an accounting degree. Mm. And so from there, you know, she basically got recruited by the Air Force. And so the Air Force had a program for both officers and then also for civilians. Mm-hmm based on grades that they were just looking for talent at the time. And, and mind you, you, we're talking the 80s. So we're talking when the military in the U.S. was three times the size it probably is now in terms mm-hmm. of bases. You know, it was before all the, the big closures happened, right, right, right? right? Which was probably in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, my mom had this opportunity to take this, this position, and it was in Marquette, Michigan, right? Wait, so <laughs> you're literally going to... Essentially, this means your whole family is about to, like, move from where you are in Northern California to just Michigan. Not only Michigan, it's Marquette. So Marquette <laughs> is, like, the upper peninsula. So it's, like, where people from Michigan don't go. Like, it's, like, way up in the boondocks. It's colder than Michigan. Like, I mean, so for some kids that grew up in, you know, Grass Valley, Nevada City, which yeah. is, like, a small woodsy town in Northern California— it's like yin and yang, right? Yeah, I mean, it's literally night and day. You're probably going there like, Ma, are we like, is this like temporary? <laughs> yeah, and so what was interesting is obviously the opportunity was too good for her to pass up. I mean, it offered stability. It offered a career. It offered an opportunity for long-term growth. And you're talking about, you know, someone that's basically, you know, I wouldn't say rough or bumpy, but, she, you know, she's fought through and fought through those seven or eight years, you know, as yeah. It was bad. Right, right. Um, and, and so she ended up taking the job in Marquette. We moved there. We were there for about three years. And it's, you know, it's a depressing, <laughs> it's a depressing city. It's What blue. is it like? Like, what's, what, is there anything happening there? No, not really. And I think it was like, you know, it would be negative 15, negative 20, you know, <laughs> with wind chills and... <laughs> You know, again, we're coming from California. And so I, and I was younger at the time. And so we were there for three years. You know, mm-hmm. generally speaking, when you're DOD, it's three-year stints. And then sometimes you can extend. But then you also have the opportunity to kind of apply for transfers. And so from there, we ended up going to uh, Davis, California. Okay. And so this is when I was in, you know, fifth or sixth grade, I believe. And I was in Davis till I was in, like, ninth grade. And this is where I kind of started deviating. You know, my brother, straight A's, you know, mm. great student, honor roll, skipped a grade, yeah. played two sports. And what are you over there doing? I always got good <laughs> grades, but I think there was this level of me that was rebelling a bit, you know. So I started smoking pot at a young age. I started basically just being a shithead, yeah. you know, would be the easiest way to put it now yeah. that I'm looking back on it, right? What do you think was, was happening? Were you just like, you were fed up with moving... Your dad was absent. Like, what what were these things, do you think? Probably deep down a combination of all those things. And then also, you know, a level of trying to fit in and assimilate. And I think that sometimes when you get in, it's like 
you smoke pot and smoke weed and other people that smoke weed, you know, you all become this. Yeah, you become this, this tribe. Yeah, so yeah, you're like, oh, you do it. All I, right, I think there's probably some insecurities, you know, that led to to some of that stuff. And mm-hmm. um, you know, again, moving, it's like you're moving to a new place. Right. Quick way to meet friends, you know, is finding those different types of, of totally. groups, right? Totally. And so, you know, God bless my mom. She was really smart in the sense that she saw all the trouble I was getting into mm-hmm. and understood that one of the best ways to to battle that is to not let me get comfortable, right? Mm-hmm. So when I started getting in a lot of trouble in Davis, she took an assignment in Denver. Mm-hmm. And so she basically extracted me from all those that people right? and was like, boom. And the environment was great. Like, home life was fine. Mm-hmm. You know, all those things were good. Obviously, we weren't, like, rich, but she provided for us in a great yeah. way. Um and so she was smart in the sense that she would like extract him out of there, right? Mm. So then I went to Denver and, you know, it takes you six to 12 months Let's to start, start getting in start trouble getting, again. Yeah, because you're but trying I, to find out what's happening, what's in, you know, what to watch out for, what to like, you know, gravitate towards. But trust me, I found it, right? <laughs> like I was, you know, inept in finding ways to get in trouble, right? So go through that whole system again. I'm basically going into my senior year of high school. You know, getting in trouble. She's catching me with drugs. You know, uh, and so then she took a assignment overseas. And so my senior year, and obviously I was mad at the world about this, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. senior year in high school, I basically moved outside of Tokyo to an Air Force base because my mom decided to take an assignment there. Wow! And this is in like mid mid nineties, mid late nineties. I graduated high school in ninety nine. Okay, so it's like okay. ninety eight, so okay. late late nineties. So I end up in. Outside of, you know, Tokyo at this Air Force base. And now I'm hanging out with a bunch of Air Force kids, which it's a little bit different, right? Mm. Because these are kids that have grown up on bases, right? Uh, And living on a base is a bit different than living on the outside. But obviously, when you're in Japan, Americans are used to certain things that don't necessarily always translate to other other cultures. mm. And so the base was built and it had those things, right? Mm -hmm. So I think we had the option to live off base, but it just made more sense for us to live in officer housing on base. Mm -hmm. So there for my senior year. um, And then after that, obviously, I went to college in Reno. Again, I wanted to go to college in Colorado where all my Mm -hmm. friends were going. And my mom was like, well, I'm not paying for that because (laughs) I know what will happen. Yeah, I mean, you know, college is already expensive. And then, you know, I, you know, some people, maybe it's just not for them. Right. Yeah, and I think for her, it was just that whole concept of making sure that she did everything in her power to keep me away from, in her eyes, what were bad elements. Mm -hmm. And it was just as much me as the people around me. You know, I was obviously putting them around myself. (laughs) So, and then obviously went to college in Reno where I graduated. Mm What did you end up going to school for? Uh, So I graduated with finance degree and a minor in Japanese. What did you want to do? You know... I was always had an entrepreneurial spirit. It was always a joke when I was a kid that all my aunts and uncles would say I'd have Bory Industries one day because <laughs> I was the kid that was buying Jolly Ranchers in you know fifth grade and selling them out of my backpack. Like I was that kid, wow. right? Yeah. So I would buy you know big packs of gum and sell it by the by the piece to mm-hmm. kids, you know, for their lunch money, and then I would go and basically reinvest that in <laughs> in more gum and candy <laughs> the sad thing is that turned into you know weed and other shit as i got older yeah, yeah. because i was like well i don't want to make pay money to smoke this, like, yeah like yeah. why would i want to do that you know buy 
<laughs> an ounce of Bammer weed for 80 bucks. I break it down into eights. And so, you know, that same entrepreneurial spirit got me in trouble. And, mm. you know, the interesting thing is when I talked to a lot of my friends in this industry, they were all the same. You know, James Whitner, you know, seems that we all kind of had the same path of like, mm-hmm towing the line and now we've actually applied that same hustle and that hustler's mentality right. to legitimate, legitimate business. business yeah and but that hunger and that hustle i think is what has you know shaped a lot of us into being able to be so successful mm-hmm. especially in this industry totally I, I mean i definitely believe that you know one thing i wanted to ask you and thinking about with this entrepreneurial spirit um at what point did you know that your dad had started businesses and real estate and all of that stuff. You know, I, I think my mom always told us about it. Mm-hmm. I don't think that it was ever like, you know, she never hid things about my dad. Mm-hmm. You know, there was obviously a level of resentment on my end. You know, he passed a couple of years ago. I had the opportunity to go see him. I didn't. Mm-hmm. But I always knew that he was an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. You know, he just, you know, went down that wrong path and couldn't yeah. get it together, yeah. which happens. You yeah. know, you see it all the time with people that are successful that they lose everything because, they get hooked on some shit mm-hmm. or, you know, they just end up get, getting, you know, becoming alcoholics and right. that leads to X, Y, and Z. Yeah. So, you know, it's tough to see, but like I said, it's, it happens, yeah, right? It happens. Yeah. I mean, life, it's never a perfect thing. There's always something happening here or there. Um, thinking about like you went for finance and, uh, you know, school for finance and, but you ended up working in nightlife, right? Yeah, so, you know, throughout college, I, I was bartending at a nightclub, which was probably the best job for college student, right? <laughs> like, bartending, earning cash. Obviously, you know, I like to party. Yeah. So I got to check all those boxes and work, mm-hmm. which was good. And then, you know, once I graduated, I probably spent about a year. I was just bartending until my mom called me and was like, what go get doing? a job. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like... <laughs> I didn't pay for you to go to school to be a bartender. Like, it's time to get serious, right? So she had expectations of, like, where she wanted you to go from a career standpoint? Yeah. I mean, growing up in my household, not getting A's was not an option. So Mm -hmm. even though I was, like, partying and doing dumb I was still getting, you know, 3.6, 3.7 or above. Um, It just, you know, school in my house was not going to college wasn't an option. Like, Mm -hmm. these are just things. And I think that it's very, like, I think especially Indian families, like all my cousins, all my aunts and uncles operate the same way. Like my grandfather was highly educated, but it's just not an option. Yeah. If you're not not checking that box, like it's a, it's a huge problem. You're probably not just getting it from her. You're probably getting it from, you know, the the whole whole family. family. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because I don't know many Indian kids that don't go to school. (laughs) Like, I don't know if you do, but I mean, I, I like generally speaking, you know, they're either Patels, they're in, you know, hotels and gas stations and restaurants you've got obviously a lot of engineers doctors Mm -hmm. i mean just as a culture i think that you know it's just not again it was never an option not to get good grades no matter what was happening around us we got good grades and my mom insured it yeah i remember i failed art class because some soul threw wet clay in the kiln i had all my projects i waited for the last minute to to fire Mm -hmm. and they all exploded so the guy get flunked me basically wow Mom grounded me for six months. I mean, I couldn't do anything. It was the worst. What was like, wait, so what was like, what was grounding for you in your house? Like, what What would she do? I was allowed to go out one night till 8 p.m. to see my <laughs> friends. Like, And this is in high school? This is in high school. <laughs> I basically was stuck doing SAT prep 
work during the day, during during my summer, right? She wow. basically set up SAT prep work for me that I had to do when she would come, come home and check. I mean, it was brutal. Dude, there's no way I could spend high school doing that. That is awful. Would you continue yep. to do the same thing? So you you would, so it was on your mind that like yo I'm not messing up with school because I can't I can't deal with this. Yeah, I think through everything you know I still got good grades even in college. Yeah, you know I think I graduated with a, like a three point six seven. Sheesh. So you're working. You know you said you for a year after school you were bartending and then what did you decide to do? So I got the call to get a real job, and after I got the call, I was like, all right, so I'll apply for a couple of jobs. I had a couple of friends that worked for an insurance company called the Hartford, which mm-hmm. is a, you know, one of the big five. Okay. You know, from insurance an insurance company. perspective. Okay. So I applied for this job as an underwriter, entry level. You're basically re- reviewing policies that insurance agents submit to make hmm. sure that, you know, the house has a good roof and, you know, right. there's nothing that would cause, you know, massive loss mm-hmm. because we and didn't put liability on the insurance company. Exactly. And so interview for the job. Get the job offer, I just take it. Didn't matter that I liked it. <laughs> you know, it was literally like, all right, I got to get a real job. So mm-hmm. I'll get this real job. And so bartending simultaneously on the weekend still because the money was really good. Yeah. And then obviously working during the week. They ended up getting their place. And mind you, I was miserable. What, right? like, what year was this when this was happening? Do you remember? Like, so this is probably 05 ish. Okay. Okay. You know, right around there. Yeah. Um, 0506. Mm-hmm. So mind you, I absolutely hate the job. Right. So, you know, it's literally like office space. And you're showing up like suit and tie. Yeah, or like it was business casual, yeah. but I'm not a business casual type of guy. So, you know, it's definitely out of place. And then I'm like showing up to a cubicle. And when I say this is like office space, the cubicles had numbers, so the mailroom could drop your shit off, like, <laughs> you know. It was literally, I was living in office space and hated it, right? Yeah. You had all these career people that were super square, that were just miserable because they were miserable at their jobs, but they had three kids and that was a career for them mm-hmm. and they weren't switching. They'd been there nope. for 20 had years. They bills and they're looking yeah. at retirement and watching and, the 401k. The and mind night. you, I respect that 100%. Like, I think that there's definitely a lot of people that need to jump in and pick a career and they just need to excel at it and crush that career and you can make a great life doing that right right but just wasn't for me you know so i'm showing up and and mind you i wasn't the best underwriter because i really didn't like it so you know it's not like i was embracing this role right in my head i was like i'm gonna move up in this company no you were like i'm only here because like i'm trying to appease like my family yeah i was like this sucks (laughs) you know this is terrible and so they ended up getting to a place where they were shutting that office. This is kind of like right when things, I think the start of the recession maybe, right? And they announced that they're, you know, basically shutting the office down and I could move to Oklahoma City, right? And I'm not saying that Reno was awesome. Like, it's a great place. It's close to Tahoe. But it's sure the f- better than Oklahoma, Oklahoma City, City, right? Like, I don't <laughs> care how you skin the cat, like. So I'm not going to Oklahoma City, right? There's no way. Would you pick Oklahoma City over Michigan, Marquette? I mean, possibly. It's a bigger city, right? <laughs> like, there's probably, there's got to be more to do to do than in small podunk Marquette, Michigan. But at the end of the day, I'm like, I'm not going to, to Oklahoma City. Mm-hmm. So nightlife company called Nikki Beach, you know, which is big in Miami and big internationally, 
somehow they struck a deal to open some nightlife venues in Reno. Mm-hmm. A good buddy of mine, who's actually my business partner uh, in Feature, you know, basically like my brother, he was working there. I ended up applying, took a job as a junior host, no salary. Just no basic, salary? No, nah, so back in the paid. day. You got paid on commission, right? And uh, so the idea was they had two or three hosts that were salaried, and I kind of applied late, and then they had these junior host options. And, you know, I basically went in and kind of crushed that job. And, you know, within six months to a year, I was the manager of the VIP oh, wow. team, right? Right. And so from there, was managing nightlife venues, and then Nikki Beach ended up pulling out because why would some internationally acclaimed hmm. nightlife company want to be in Reno? Like, the hmm. deal fell apart. The hotel ended up running the um, the venue still. So we stayed on, right? They just changed the names, whatever. Yeah. And then I just realized, like, you know, I was kind of burnt. So I decided, you know, if I'm going to do nightlife, Vegas is definitely the place to go. Mm. We had a lot of friends that were working in nightlife out here. And so I ended up moving to Vegas, right? Wow. So Vegas nightlife is not like Reno nightlife, just to so, be clear. <laughs> like, Probably an obvious question. What's the difference? So I guess from a work standpoint, you're out all the time, right? So mm-hmm. one, you know, our venues in, in Reno were open maybe Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Mm-hmm. Most venues in Vegas are open five days a week or four days a week. If it's a company that has multiple venues, you might work in multiple venues. You had office hours where you were in there, you know, contacting and basically reaching out to people if you're in VIP services. Right. Then you had outings, right? So on yeah. top of all that, you know, you go as groups to, you know, other venues mm-hmm. to basically support other venues, show presence, yeah. try to acquire tables yeah, for your venue. Course, right. And, you know, this is, I'm eight or 10 years into nightlife at this point. And, you know, either you're, there's two types of people in nightlife. There's people that love to f-ing party mm-hmm. and can party for the rest of their lives. Right. And they're great at nightlife. <laughs> and there's guys that are, you know, good at not partying, but it's a career and they can really excel at it excel because it. there's tons of money to be made mm-hmm. and they crush it. Right. They're just locked in on that part of it. Sure. And I was probably... The guy that liked to party initially, but then got burnt out, was mm-hmm. like, you know, at some point you get old. What, right? like, what type of hours are we talking here? Like, are you always like, do you sleep? Are you always on? Like, what's happening? No, I mean, I think like, you know, you had to be at the venue from, you know, before opening to at least one thirty or two in the morning, mm-hmm. and then you could probably leave. But if you had a big spender or a client, you're going to stay there till four. Them. Right. You're going to take them to after hours. Mm-hmm. You're going to take them to the Rhino because mm-hmm. you want to mm-hmm. you retain that sure client, they, right? Yes, absolutely. Want to make sure and, you're having a great time. And so again, you know, I just got to this. I just hit a wall where it just wasn't working. Mm-hmm. And so interestingly enough, I was having a tough time in Vegas in terms of working at nightlife. My business partner, EJ, was still working in Reno, and they needed help basically on the weekends Mm -hmm. at the venue I used to work at. And Mm -hmm. so I started flying up every weekend and working there and basically, you know, running the the venue on the weekends Mm -hmm. and then flying back to Vegas during the week Mm because I lived in Vegas or stay for a couple days. It just depended. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of when, you know, I had this brilliant idea to open Feature. Hmm. So tell me about this side of life right because this is a whole nother interest right like this is like it's not finance it's not working in nightlife now we're talking about sneakers we're talking about streetwear what was like what was that spark of inspiration so i think you know i've always been into fashion and when i was working in reno and nightlife i basically subleased a space in the back of a store called the attic 
which was a women's boutique. And this is back when contemporary was the shit, you know. <laughs> so I'm talking Ed Hardy, mm-hmm. Rock and Republic, mm-hmm. Salvage. The category that we're we're in now didn't really exist, right? Mm-hmm. So there's luxury streetwear, you know, was probably emerging at that time, but there was other graphic t-shirt lines, but it was never considered to be streetwear. This concept of like an off-white or you know, and I hate to use this term luxe street, right? Mm-hmm. But it's not necessarily luxury. It's not necessarily <laughs> contemporary. It's, you know, a lot of it's graphics driven. It's really expensive. So it's, you know, luxurious. I, I, I don't know what the right term is. I don't think anyone has coined it yet. Yeah. But um, so, but that category didn't exist. So mm-hmm. I subleased the space in the back of the store. And I basically opened up accounts with all these contemporary brands that are hot at the time. The mm-hmm. toughest brands to get. And so I, I'm doing that on the side. And then lo and behold, that store ends up shutting down. Mm-hmm. Right. They just, was it just like, weren't getting the traffic, weren't getting the business? She, the owner basically decided to open a salon and didn't feel like, uh-huh. you know, boutiques are a struggle. Like anyone yeah. that tells you that boutiques, that running a retail operation is easy, is delusional. Like, What's the, what, what would you say is that the biggest part? Is it getting traffic in or is it like landlords and rent or is it just a combination? I think it's a combination of everything. I think a lot of boutiques are owned by, you know, I hate to use this term. It's like a lot of, a lot of, you know, women's boutiques are owned by people where it's just a side hobby mm. or they like fashion and, you know, rich husbands looking for them to do something. Like, I think it's just, it's a tough industry. You got to maintain inventory. You got to have cash flow and all mm. those things are things that people don't grasp. And to be honest, I didn't grasp it initially yeah. when I opened this place. And we'll probably get to overbuying at some point in this conversation because <laughs> I am I was the king of that for a long time. But so she decides to shut down the store. And, you know, I obviously still love fashion. Yeah, so of course. what I do is I go open a box at UPS and just say, I move my store because when you have a box at UPS, it's sweet, whatever. But really, it's just your box. Mm-hmm. So what I do is I basically keep all my wholesale accounts and I start a personal shopping business. Mm. And so basically set up a room in my my condo, which was downtown in Reno, set it up with all these clothes. And mm. then I work in nightlife. So I'm working with a bunch of people that are making cash. Right. So you bring them through. And so what I would do is either bring them through or I would set up these bags full of product in their size. Wow. I would give it to them. And then I would say, look, everything's 30% off retail. Mm. So that was kind of my stick. Like, you don't have to pay retail. You don't don't go to a store and buy this. I'm going to give you a better price. Come to me, right. And you don't have to go anywhere, right? I'll just mm-hmm. give you this bag of clothes. You know, it was, in hindsight, it's almost like the shit that's happening now, these subscription services. Right, yeah, but, yeah. but, you know, in a more <laughs> ghetto and more, you know, ridiculous way because, you know, I was using these bags and I was like, here, this is all this stuff in your size. Tell me what you end up keeping. You pay me. Yeah. Get the bag back. It goes to somebody else, right? Mm-hmm. So... Even when I moved to Vegas, I was still doing that to an extent because mm-hmm. I still had inventory. Mm-hmm. You know, then I had to liquidate it. So I put some stuff on eBay for the first time and kind of stayed in in boutique world, I guess, throughout. Mm-hmm. It was really, though, when I got to Vegas that, you know, we'd always had an affinity for sneakers, right? Yeah. Like, who doesn't like cool shoes? It's almost <laughs> like a haircut, you yeah. know, like putting on a fresh new pair of sneakers uh, or clothes for, yeah. or clothes for that matter, right? Yeah. You put on a fresh fit and you're going somewhere, you feel good. 100%. Right? Like it's, you know, you got a little bravado to you. Yeah, you're ready yeah. to go. Like, like, can't nobody tell you nothing. You just, yeah, you know, you know yourself. <laughs> yeah, you feel like you're dripping, you know? Like, <laughs> and so, uh, 
at the time, there was obviously undefeated in town. Mm-hmm. And they, they had sneakers. And there wasn't really anyone else. Yeah. And so in my, my head, I'm flying back to Reno on the weekend. I'm talking to my... Uh, to EJ and I'm in the DJ booth. He's DJing and I'm telling him about this idea. And at the time, this is right when housing market crashed. And right. so everything EJ, is just yeah, everyone's apart. Everyone is right. So he just basically like he had a deal on his house. So he's paying his mortgage into a bank account, but not paying his mortgage because that's how you had to do it in order to get them to basically refi you into something that was oh, reasonable. Wow. So he was basically making sure he had the money for his payment, but hoping that the bank would basically come back and say, this is absurd. We got to figure this out, mm-hmm. right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, the guy was in, I think, might have been an all-interest loan. Like, he just got a deal at the time, right? Yeah. So, he's basically like, yeah, this sounds like a good idea. I've got some cash that I've been putting <laughs> away, right? So, let's do it. So, you know, at the time, I, we ended up, I, I, there was four of us that started this business. Mm-hmm. Now, there's there's three of us, but... At the time, uh, Aaron, who's still involved, he was a big DJ in Vegas. And we'd gone out one night and, you know, I was a little drunk. And I told him kind of what I wanted to do and why, you know, I gave him the elevator pitch, right? And he's like, oh, you know, I've got some money. You know, I'm down, right? And then, you know, there's a fourth guy that actually, same scenario. He was a friend of of a friend and he Mm -hmm. ended up saying the same thing. So, lo and behold, we all put in... We came up with 75 grand, right? 75 grand. Were you nervous at all about working with other people in that way? You know, I will tell you that we ended up having a horror story with one of the partners, but the other two, you know, EJ's, he's our COO. Mm-hmm. He's still heavily involved. I couldn't have built a business without him, you know, so Aaron's still involved as well. Um, I think it, it, it always poses challenges. I would say that we definitely made some mistakes that, we shouldn't have not having we had an operating agreement it wasn't solid mm-hmm. that posed challenges down the road mm-hmm. but i think that it is nice to have somebody that i can lean on and wholeheartedly trust yeah. when building something like this i mean it's um, a lot to go if you were to go into this by yourself right i mean i'm sure you probably think back to moments where you know you hit the fan and you're like oh, i'm glad i got like some partners in this cuz so yeah, for one person it's it's interesting because on the one hand when you're struggling to make it you feel like it's not just me. It's not just my money on the line. If we fail, we all fail, right? And then sometimes when you get really successful and somebody's not pulling their weight, you start thinking the opposite. Like, why is this along for the ride? Mm-hmm. You know, like I'm working seven days a week, mm-hmm. 90 hours, you know, waking up at two in the morning to call Japanese and European brands in the hopes that you can pick them up. Right. You know, and that's the type of work ethic I had. And that can become challenging too sometimes, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, so yeah, so I, I pitched these guys, came up with the money. Uh, my mom let me borrow some money in order mm-hmm. to, to, to start, start the business. And we find this location in Chinatown. And mind you, now this is 2010. So this is in the peak of the recession. Right. So In Chinatown in, in Vegas? Correct. Okay. So, you know, obviously we're complete for opening up a retail store in the middle of a recession and thinking that's a good idea. <laughs> but but the, the rent must have been... Yeah, the rent wasn't bad. Yeah. Like, we're still in that location. We remodeled it a bunch of times. We're still, we still have our original, you know, location, which obviously we all have an emotional connection to because it's where we started. Mm-hmm. 
But we opened this store and we call in every favor we could, right? We call in a, a friend of a friend that's a contractor. So he helps us, you know, do this basic build, right? And when I say basic, we had Ikea shelves, the thick brown <laughs> wood ones that everyone buys, right? Yep. Like everyone's used these at some point. You know, Ikea's probably done a billion dollars in sales off these shelves. Literally, I think I had some in my apartment in Boston. <laughs> so we have this store that's basically four shelves and it's lined. The whole, all the walls are lined and in between the shelves, we like bought mirrors from a mirror place. Not even like, they didn't even have a border. They were just cut big mirrors that we basically stuck to the walls, right? <laughs> and then mind you, we did everything that was tacky that I would never do in retail. So we carried G-Shock. So G-Shock gave us this big case. You put the right? case in there. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, you had Nixon, you put everything. the Nixon. Yeah, yep. you don't care, right? Like, it's like, I mean, we look like f***ing zoomies, right? Like, anything free POP display. You took it. If we get it, we would use it, right? Mm -hmm. And so the concept was sneakers and anything you could pair with sneakers. So think plain T-shirts, no graphics. So mm -hmm. you bought a green pair of sneakers. We had a green T-shirt to match, right? <laughs> green G-Shock to match if you want to go that route. And that was always, that was the original concept. Well... Lo and behold, you know, I'm coming from the contemporary world where mm -hmm. brands look at proximity to distribution, and that's it. So mm -hmm. if you're five miles away from the closest account and you're decent, they'll open, they'll you, open right? right? Because right. that's all that matters. Mm -hmm. Well, we opened up in a place that was far enough from undefeated. And, you know, basically in my head, I'm like, we're going to get all these accounts. Mm. Had you had, uh, Had you had any other intel aside from your previous experience that would tell you otherwise not you, you, really so you're pretty like this is gonna work right like you'd already brought in your your partners that were also investors you'd already you know got this money from your mom construction build out all of this stuff and so now you're like yeah this is this is the easy part yeah so now i th yeah in my head i'm like we're gonna get these accounts right so and, and again I didn't know a crazy amount about sneakers. I just, we would come to Undefeated when we came to Vegas yeah. and we would buy cool shoes, right. right? Didn't fully understand that there's Vans Vault and there's this tier and that tier. And so as we're getting ready to, to open the store, we find out that a big DJ, DJ Vice, is opening a store called Crossover in the Cosmopolitan, oh right? So now I'm like, <laughs> right? Because now you have Undefeated and now you have this store opening this brand new hotel. Mm -hmm. They open up with Tier Zero Nike. They open wow. up with Jordan. You know, they open up with basically all the best sneaker accounts. Mm -hmm. We're over here in Chinatown with Clay and Pony and Creative Rec and Pro Kets because no major footwear company would f with us. What were they? No. What were they saying? You know, you just opened. You know, the usual stuff that, in hindsight, once you realize why big footwear companies tell you no. It makes sense. And the reasoning is, is that most boutiques in our space, they shut down within a year or two years, mm. right? And when you're booking footwear so far out, it becomes really challenging to open somebody to know that they're going to shut down, down, especially for the tiering and the stuff that we're trying to get. Mm -hmm. It's so guarded that, you know, basically a rep is going to bat for you essentially to get you this account. Mm -hmm. And... They don't want to go to bat because they look like complete assholes when accounts shut down in 12 months or 18 mm. months or two years, right? And boutiques are, boutiques and restaurants and bars, they're the two toughest mm. businesses to operate. And so, you know, we've seen it, we see it all the time. Like, people just don't make it. When we return, Ajay learned some lessons on his road to being a streetwear entrepreneur.
For this week's Community Stories feature, presented by 99designs by Vistaprint, let's hear from Francesca Cheney, owner of Soul Sips, a plant-based restaurant based in Brooklyn, New York. With a desire to be a staple in the community while refreshing their brand identity, Francesca shares a story about starting her own juice company, adding plant-based foods, and packaged goods to her restaurant. My name is Francesca Cheney, and I am a tastemaker and restaurateur at Soul Sips. Soul Sips is a plant-based restaurant and packaging company. We started in 2015 as a bottled juice company where we sold our herbal coffees and our fresh pressed juices and handmade almond milks, Brazil nut milk, walnut milk, you name it. Um, we popped up all over around Brooklyn and we started at my cousin's apothecary in Crown Heights. Over the time, people gave us good feedback and the feedback that we received encouraged us to keep going. And from there, in 2017, we got the opportunity to do more of a semi-permanent pop-up for three months. And in those three months, we also added food to our business model because the space we were popping up in had a 50 square foot kitchen that allowed us to make food. And when the three months of our pop-up was over, so many people that were in the neighborhood begged us to stay. And they said, we're gonna make sure that you guys stay here permanently. And that's exactly what happened because December is gonna make it four years since we first started Soul Sips in a brick and mortar form. After crowdfunding, we were able to stay permanently in the location, turn it over, and that was, that the rest is pretty much history. Soul Sips has been a staple in the community. We do sliding scale brunches. Um, we also focus on making our food relatable through the flavors and the spices. Um, it's very much your feel-good food that doesn't feel super vegan. And through the process of sustaining Soul Sips, we made it through our first year of COVID. COVID was intense because one of my favorite parts about this experience and running Soul Sips is being able to peek my head out of the kitchen and see people enjoying the food and seeing their reaction. So not being able to do that and operating as takeout and delivery with the exception of outdoor dining was very new. It was a big adjustment. However, there is a silver lining of opportunity and that's what we saw and that's what we made space for. And that's how our meal kit program came about. This meal kit program, it turned out to be such a beacon of light because people received that well. And now we're here and we are fortunate to be able to continue this new arm of the business, which um, we're now open Wednesday through Saturday as a regular restaurant. And on Mondays and Tuesdays, we reserve those days for packaging and shipping our meal kits. I am most looking forward to growing our meal kit program. I look forward to seeing it all over the US and I wanna see the trucks everywhere, like similar to Fresh Direct. And I wanna see it be a top tier plant-based food delivery service. 
The process of working with 99designs has been very seamless. It was something that um, allowed me to also be creative as well in expressing what I wanted our logo refresher to look like. Uh, ultimately, we chose a logo that was minimal and more mature. I wanted people to see this logo and say, okay, it's plant-based food, it's wholesome, it's quality, it's feel good. And that's what the logo we selected feels like. I'm also very happy that I was able to include my team and my family in the process of voting. That to me was a cool addition to this process that engaged me even more because I love being able to share what I'm working on with the people that I love. I plan on using the money for growing our packaging arm of the business. What that means for me is meal kit boxes that are branded with our logos on them, the packaging when you open up the box, even the talker that comes out of the box explaining to people what they're about to eat and how it was cooked and how this program came about. Um, I'm looking forward to hopefully developing our, our meal kit program and our packaging line with this funding that we've recently received. That was Francesca Cheney, owner of Soul Sips, a plant-based restaurant based in Brooklyn, New York. Learn more about 99 Days of Design, a 99 Designs by Vistaprint initiative at 99designs.com slash 99 Days of Design. Hey, it's Bima. Welcome back to Claim the Stories. Ajay has just started feature in the middle of a recession and making $350 a week from unemployment. It's funny. So we, so I basically calculated that I had to sell $157 a day in order to break even. And mind you, like this is in the middle of the recession. I quit working nightlife. I'm on unemployment, right? This is when Obama, uh, the Obama Act, and you know, there's an extra, they kept extending unemployment. Mm -hmm. So for the first probably 12 to 18 months of the store, I'm on 350 a week unemployment, but oh, working wow. in my own business six days a week. Yeah. My business partner, Aaron's wife, Kelly, would work on Sundays just so I had a day off. Yeah. Luckily, we sucked and we didn't have people coming in. So if I'd gone out the night, I could sleep in the back kind of and watch the cameras and listen <laughs> for the door buzz. But, you know, I basically knew what I had to sell to break even. And so when you're at that level got that hustler's mentality, right? So I launch an eBay store, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm selling Clay and Creative Rec and all these brands on eBay because I'd had some experience when I had to liquidate all those contemporary clothes when I got out of that business. So I kind of knew how, to, how it operated. And so we utilized eBay at the time to basically pick up a bunch of additional sales as we're building. And that kind of allowed us to keep the business afloat and, mm -hmm. and you know when I say I started with 75,000 just so everyone knows that is grossly undercapitalized <laughs> what, what would you have preferred I mean, to have started with I guess now if you think about it and, and that's a tough question to answer because I think it depends on the accounts you're the, able to open with yeah, right now we sell a lot of premium products um and so to open a store like ours now I would say a million bucks maybe more wow um, because obviously our builds are a little bit more extensive, mm -hmm. you know, because of the brands we're carrying and because of, you know, where we want to position ourselves. Right. And then the inventory is just more expensive because we're selling more expensive stuff at this point. Mm 
Um, and it could be more, right? It just mm. depends. But, you know, we're grossly undercapitalized. We're utilizing eBay. We're selling some stuff in the store, doing everything we can. Lo and behold, a brand called Tom's comes around, right? <laughs> and mind you, this is when nobody was doing the buy one, give one. Yeah, well, no, this was fresh this was, on the market. They, they were, they were the first, right? Yeah. And so we get a Tom's account. And I am just cranking Tom's on eBay, <laughs> like selling $60,000, $70,000 a week, right? What? And it's amazing because now I'm, now for the first time, you know, I'm pulling, I, I'm off unemployment. I'm taking three fifty a week from mm-hmm. the store, right? Mm-hmm. And three fifty a week, guys, you can't really, I'm just, that much yeah, to live off. You're scraping. Minimum. Yeah, you scrape you're scraping by. by, right? I replaced my unemployment, did that for like a year. And, you know, so Tom's explodes, got an eBay business. I'm buying some off-price goods from other brands. We're maintaining some margins and we're dumping everything back into the business, mm-hmm. right? It allowed us to buy inventory and really stay afloat. And so the first time that I take a vacation, I go to India for my grandfather's 100th birthday. Mm-hmm. So I fly to India and I land and, you know, get to Wi-Fi and I turn my phone on and I get an email. I get like 700 emails basically saying that all these Tom's eBay listings have been shut down Ooh. based on this bureau program, which is the verified rights owner pro- uh, program. So eBay had set this program program up when people were selling fakes Mm -hmm. that, you know, a company could come to them and say, we're the verified rights owners of this product. We need to be able to police what's happening to an extent. Oh, my goodness. So at the time, a lot of brands were launching their own Ebays, right? Mm -hmm. This is before there was, I mean, eBay was the richest time. Amazon was whatever. Right, right. You know, but eBay was the one, right, Mm -hmm. for a third-party selling channel. And so I get this email that all my listings are shut down. And I like instantly turned to my brother. I'm like, I got to go back. Oh like I'm, I'm fucking going out of business. Like literally in the middle of your grandfather's like just landed birthday. first day in India. Tired. I'm like, I got to go. Like I'm freaking out. You know. Mm. And at the time, we didn't have a big team. Like I'm have this inventory now that I'm like, I, what am I going to do with do this? With- yeah. You know. Like definitely not selling that much Tom's through my store. <laughs> yeah. And I remember distinctly, my brother looks at me and says, "Man, sounds like you got bigger problems." I'm like could be a bigger problem than this. <laughs> right, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, I'm going under. Yeah. And he's like, no, your bigger problem is is that one thing hmm. can basically shut your business down. Hmm. And you know, I hate to tell you this, you built the wrong type of business, right? Hmm. And that resonates with me to this day, right? Wow. You talk about vendors that people get dependent on and, you know, there's this lore of footwear brand X, you know, shutting, being able to shut people down because... They decide to pull their account or for B, you know, it's 40% of their business and, yeah. you know, it goes south. And so now, you know, from that day forward, I realized in my head, like, I built something incorrectly, right? Mm. Like, we can't be dependent on one thing because if yeah. that one thing, something could happen at any given time. Damn, you're out of business. You are and there's people working for you at this right. point. Like, it's all these, you know, it'd be, it's just a shitty feeling, yeah. you know, and, and he was right. And mm. so, long and short of it, we, we weathered that storm, you know, and it, we've had a couple, probably three or four different instances like that. And, yeah. you know, the one thing I would say about being an entrepreneur is you have to get used to taking those crazy L's. Mm. And the more you take them, the more you understand that, you know, I don't have the luxury of 
beating around the bush because this is was my call, my decision. It didn't work. I got to keep it pushing. Yeah. Right. I like, mean, you don't have the option. Not you don't to. have the option to just be like, oh, I guess it didn't work. Right. Like you're talking about real lives at stake. Yeah. Your livelihood. Right. Yeah. You're talking about everything. And, yeah. you know, fear of failure for me was has always been a massive thing. Mm-hmm. Right. But I think that once you start having those instances, those big monetary hits, those big things that shake your business up, you just become stronger and you have a better understanding of like, this is going to happen mm-hmm. from time to time. Yeah. And I've built something that can weather it and keep moving and you got to remember it, hmm. you know, and keep going. My goodness. So whether the Tom storm, you know, keep fighting to get brands. Eventually, you know, we end up getting our first big footwear account is new balance. Mm. And luckily at the time, for some reason, you know, we end up getting New Balance, we end up getting Asics, and we end up getting Saucony, mm-hmm. or kind of like our three big footwear majors, as we would call them, right? And this is like 2013, 14, 15? Yeah, probably yeah. right around there, 12, 13, yeah. 14, right? Okay. And, you know, for some reason, retro running just starts cracking. Mm-hmm. Like, retro running had like a two-year moment. Made in U.S. New Balance was booming overseas. Um, you know, I mean, it was just the time, and we ended up having those three accounts getting the top tier of those accounts because we didn't have Nike, Jordan, Mm -hmm. Vans, you know, or Adidas, you Mm. know, at the time, right? So we're basically, all of our focus is on those brands. And so we're able to climb the the ladder with them rather quickly because for a lot of other guys at the time, they're getting retro Jordans. They're getting other stuff, right. So New Balance is kind of like, all right, we're going to buy some. It's working Mm -hmm. here and there. But my focus is on, you know, the big money, right? Right. Where the big money is. Jeremy Scott, Adidas mm-hmm. is popping. Like mm-hmm. that's just where the money the money was, and so we were able to climb the tier with those guys. And we basically retro running cracks off, and yeah. now we have this other perfect explosive moment where we're able to basically keep winning and growing the business. Right mm-hmm. as retro running begins to die, you know, at the time Adidas was on moratorium, Nike and Jordan. And moratorium meaning they weren't opening anyone. Yeah, they were just having a moment, right? And with big footwear companies, when they're having a moment, they just freeze, right? Gotcha. They're like, reps are like, we don't need to open anybody. We're doing so much business. Hmm. There's no point in over-distributing. Mm-hmm. We can still handle the pairs to our existing partners. You know, just they just basically freeze. Yeah, and it happens all the time, right? Like, And so at the time, Nike and Jordan, they're not really giving us the time of day. We had some moments where we were talking to reps, and then they went dead silent. Mm-hmm. And so... Retro running starts slowing down and Adidas literally lifted a moratorium for like a month. And we had been in talks with them and we end up getting our account open. We're open for a couple months and Kanye happens, right? Mm. Like completely changes first, the landscape of the sneaker. First, first thing he does is he wears a white ultra boost. Right. Like a technical running shoe that was never meant to be lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And Kanye wears it at a concert, and people are like, "What is that knit mm-hmm. shoe that looks <laughs> awesome?" And it's, it was a great shoe, right? right? Like, I still think it's a great shoe. The right. original Ultra Boost, I will still wear it. Like, mm-hmm. it's an awesome shoe. And that happens, right? Yeah. And now the shift is away from retro running, and Adidas is on fire, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, being the hustler I, I am, I'm on B two B, finding you know thousands of pairs of Ultra Boosts. And I'm booking them, ATS, they're not catching me do it, I'm buying, so we're getting all this inventory flowing in. And 
it's working right and mm-hmm. and again mind you everything is going back into the business at this point right you're, right you know you're you're very focused on just continuing to build the brand build the business right yeah and you kind of had to be because we had no money right? <laughs> like we started with no money so there was no cash reserve there was no way like if i had to acquire a brand or bring on a new brand we had to fund it with the profits from whatever from brand was exploding did. at yeah. that time right and then mind you, you know, at that point, you're getting off other party sales channels because you don't want to risk your accounts. Mm-hmm. You know, at the time, it's like, you know, and I'm not going to create a wreck and play in some of those brands. You don't care as much. But when you start getting the big guys, you're pulling off those other channels, you know, because, again, you just don't want to. It's not worth losing it's your not, account. Right, right. So now you're solely focused on what you're doing mm-hmm. yourself, which isn't a bad thing, but you don't have that cushion, right? Mm-hmm. If maybe I can sell some 20% off here mm-hmm. and, you know. You'll be able to cover. Right? Exactly. And so... You know, everything is going back into the business. We're trying to get apparel at the time <laughs> because, again, there's this evolution in what we do where it's not just about sneakers. Mm-hmm. Now it's like sneakers and apparel, mm-hmm. like streetwear gets booming. And then all these things are happening where it's like, you know, you're buying sneakers and you're buying cool apparel at the same time. Accessories, like the whole thing. It's, it's becoming a full package now. Yep. And so, mind you, you know, as this is happening, we don't have any place for apparel. So <laughs> I call a California Closets, right? Which is a national company. And I have them build me this nasty, obtrusive <laughs> island in the middle of, middle of my store. Like when in hindsight, like this it was hideous, right? <laughs> but it had some apparel racks and it had some place to stack some apparel. And, yeah. you know, it worked and it was cheap, right? Mm-hmm. At the time. And so... We get some apparel and I'm trying to go after bigger brands. I'm calling Margella. I'm calling all these guys wow. thinking like, oh, we're going to get in there. Of course, I'm going to f- off, right? <laughs> Not returning my emails. But I finally call, you know, CDG Play, right? Which mm-hmm. is a brand that obviously it's an awesome brand. And they tell me no, right? Um, in fact, James Whitner actually helped connect me with them. You know, this wow. is way back in the day when we were both you know, kind of getting our footing. Mm-hmm. And so our friends from the foundation, actually Antoine, who I think James mentions mm-hmm. a bunch of times, he had actually put us in contact because at the time I had MCM and James had some stuff that I wanted. Mm-hmm. And so we started helping each other a bit, yeah, trying to get some contact. Find your allies and start to build your community and trying to grow yeah, because you're all in different markets. Yeah, we're in different markets. So we're not worried about the competition. Mm-hmm. Internet, I'm not even, don't even have a website. <laughs> so there's just no competition between yeah. the two of us at that time, you mm-hmm. know? And so to this day, we remain really close friends. Um, and chat all the time. But so we're helping each other. And so he sets me up with CDG Play and they find out, tell me no. And so I ask them why. And they're like, well, your store is not really set up for apparel. It's hmm. a shoe store. And then you've added this rack for apparel. <laughs> like that's not how we want our product displayed. Right. Uh, and so it's the first time that that really resonates with me. Like, okay, well, somebody told me why, mm-hmm. which is awesome. Right. right. It's Cause it's not As about the no. Just no. Yeah. I want to know how to do better. Cause I'm right. clearly invested in it. And, and that's one of the fallacies of this industry. I think is like people always tell, you no, and they do one of two things. They just tell, you no, and that's it. Or if they ask you why they basically give you a reason that's so unattainable mm. that they're basically telling you nothing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's not reality because you look at other accounts that brand X has that's sitting next to the brands you have, but they're telling you that you have to have Dior in order to get it. (laughs) And you're like, look, dude, there's 30 accounts out of your 40 that don't have Dior. So Mm -hmm. what am I missing? Right. 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 It's basically their way of telling you like, off. Mm -hmm. We just, you're never getting it or whatever. Right. Right. But I love it when brands would tell me the why, Mm -hmm. because I'm the guy that's like, okay, cool. I'll go fix that. Mm. And then I'll come back 
You know, it's like, <laughs> it's like, uh, I don't know if you've seen that movie Goodwill Hunting when Matt yeah. Damon says, how do you like them apples with <laughs> yep, the number, yep. right? Like, and that's the moment where he's like, all right, screw you, you, yeah. I really, I, I go do went it. and did it, mm -hmm, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I'm that guy. Like, so they told me, so I went and we found a building, we remodeled the store. Wow. And we set it up to have apparel and we set it up, you know, way different and it was better. And then I went back to CEG Play and said, mm -hmm. here's the new images. Here's the new brand deck, right? Right. And they said, yes. Wow. Right? Wow. And so at that moment, you start realizing, like, you know, always ask the why. Hmm. Because no's aren't permanent. No, of course not. And But a lot of times people think they are. You get discouraged, you know? I remember yeah. there was a two-year stint in Feature where I was just, I was burnt. We were getting a bunch of no's from brands. This is when Hood by Air and some of the guys mm -hmm. were popping. And you just get in a rut. And I was in a rut for like two years. And then, you know, we'll get to this, but we had the opportunity to open at the win. Mm. And that kind of reinvigorated our business yeah, overall. It really changed perception. What did you do over those two years to stay inspired? Like to stay in it? Because that's a grind. Then it starts to feel like a grind. I think the reality is, is I didn't have another option, mm. right? At that point, we had a bunch of staff. We had a little warehouse. Our online business was doing well. And it wasn't that I didn't enjoy what I was doing. I just wasn't aggressively going after a lot of the newer, hotter brands because I'd gotten seven or eight no's. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I just kind of got in a rut. So we still had a good brand list. We still had good footwear, but we weren't pushing that envelope. And, and in this business, the way it moves and how fast it moves, you don't have the luxury of missing two years because you're in yeah, a rut. Be because forgotten. what happens yeah. is all those hot brands, you don't get them. They remain hot. They go on moratorium. Mm. We're not opening anybody, right? So and now you've lost that opportunity and you got to wait seasons. for the next wave <laughs> yeah. of brands. And so that two years can be definitive in the sense that you just may not, you may miss brands for four years because of that or wow. forever long. And so now you've just lost a moment mm. in time in an industry where it's constantly moving at the speed of light. I mean, I've never seen, even now, it's moving faster than ever. Yeah, I mean, it's it, there's no way to keep up with everything that's happening right now. Like, it's it's insane. Um, but, you know, I, I think you all have done a good job of figuring out, like, your pacing and how you want to, you know, play in the industry and how you want to keep up. I mean, you mentioned the, the location in the wind, which is, like, you have a store in the wind. Like, how does that come about? <laughs> so it was actually pretty interesting. We... So the wind was doing a big expansion. Um, they were basically they had a I think a Ferrari or Lamborghini dealership, which they got rid of, <laughs> and they decided to add more retail. So the wind is one of the top performing retail um, per square foot in the country. Wow. It's like Madison Avenue. It's I mean it's it's up there. It's Rodeo up there. numbers like it's insane, right? Yeah. And so they decided to add more retail. And at the time, we knew a bunch of people that worked in with nightlife, and we had talked to them and. You know, these guys are VPs of nightlife. They're really high up. And they're like, yeah, you know, we kind of talk to the retail. They have these meetings internally about what's happening. And at the time, the, the answer was they only want external brands, right? Hmm. So if you think about Vegas holistically, Vegas is the entertainment capital of the world. But it, it's also, to me, like the import capital of the world, right? Okay. So if Cipriani's is amazing in New York, Vegas wants it. Yeah. Gordon Ramsay's the hottest chef in the country. There's four Gordon Ramsay restaurants right, right. right now, Vegas right? Is like, that's here. If, if it's, you know, yeah. So, I mean, any Scarpetta, like, you know, anything that's awesome anywhere, they want to have it here because mm. this needs to be a destination mm -hmm. for that. 
And so when I heard, like, look, they're just bringing external brands, it's that's why, right? They want to bring in the best external sneaker shop in the world or whatever because they want that to draw people to, yes. to the win. To the win, right? right. And so we kind of deaded it. As, you know, obviously, like, whatever. It is what it is. You know, about a year later, we get... Uh, there's a Mace Rich. They own a bunch of shopping centers, and they actually flew us out to Scottsdale. They have a big mm-hmm. mall there, and they're courting us to open. And so we're on this scouting trip. They put us up in a nice hotel, and there's, you know, the guys that own Toka Madera there. And the other guy in our group is a guy named Charlie. Mm-hmm. And so Charlie ends up being the head of North American retail for, I believe, Curing. Okay. So, and if you don't know Curing, Curing is like a bunch of luxury brands, right? Mm-hmm. They own Puma at the time, mm-hmm. but they also own, I think, Montblanc, Cartier. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's a big group. It's, it's not as big yeah. as LVMH, but it's, yeah, it's plays, sizable. plays yeah. in that same world, right? Right. So, we end up kind of connecting with him and kind of shooting the with him and kind of build some good rapport, exchange numbers, and get back to Vegas. And through the grapevine, I heard that the win was going to basically open a store called Sweet 160, which is another sneaker shop. And, you know, not knocking Sweet 160 at all. But at that point, I'm like, so they're looking at someone local. Hmm. You know, I get kind of fired up. Yeah. Because in my head, you know, like, we're a good this is my yard. store. Yeah. yeah. You know, f- that. I'm going to yeah. go after it, right? <laughs> like, so I basically, you know, don't know where to start, right? Mm-hmm. So we reach out to Charlie, and I'm like, hey, man, do you know, like, this guy obviously knows every operator, right? right? From right. a real estate perspective. We reach out to Charlie, and he's like, as a matter of fact, I do know somebody <laughs> on that on. project. He's <laughs> like, it's actually my old boss. Wow. Kearing is basically running that whole project and helping them with all the leasing. So he puts us in contact with a guy named uh, Rich, right? Mm-hmm. So Rich is, at the time, they're, like, still planning and getting everything, and they've got some execute leases so he lives in new york but he's here every other week so Hmm. he's like i'm gonna be here this date come pick me up you know we'll meet at the win we can talk about it take me to your store so i take him to the store and he's like yeah this is exactly what we want lo and behold the win wasn't opening sweet 160 they just wanted a sneaker concept so bad and the vp at the win knew jeff the owner of sweet 160 and brought him on to consult because they were going to build their own Right. They're going to build their own shop in there? Yeah, they just they knew that that category was, yeah. I mean, this is like, I mean, the category was massive and they right. were missing it. So they're like, if we can't get somebody, then we'll we're going to do it, it right? Hmm. So we basically go back to Nike, you know, and we finally had gotten Nike at this point mm-hmm. and we started having a, some conversations with them. And mind you, you know, we get the Nike team to come out to take a look at the site. So we meet with Nike, and then the VP of the Win meets with the Nike because if we don't work out, they're like trying to get a Nike account on their own, right? So they've already touched base and figured it out. And, you know, luckily, you know, we were able to, you know, dot our I's and cross our T's, and we we got the nod from most of our vendors. And, you know, the the concept of opening the Win, it's obviously extremely expensive to be there. It was never profitability. It was always elevation, right? Mm. And And when you say elevation, what do you you mean, like, in the eyes of? Clients, if customers. Customers, and... clients, but also vendors. Okay. You know, if you think about the win, if for those of that aren't familiar, they have every point of luxury distribution there is. <laughs> Rolex, Chanel, and not just, you know, Rolex and Chanel and Hermes. They've got an 8,000-square-foot two-story yeah. Hermes, right? Yeah. Like, that's two doors, three doors down from our store. And mm-hmm. so when you talk about elevation, it gave us the ability to 
basically elevate our brand by having being adjacent to these other luxury retailers. Mm. And even though we had this awesome brand matrix at the time, we were still located in Chinatown. So for some of the emerging designers, the Tom Browns, the Raph Simmons of the world, you know, they were still a little bit weary of getting us open in Chinatown and Vegas. Right. The complex isn't sexy. You know, it's just where we opened initially and it mm-hmm. worked. And it works. Right. And so it really broke down a lot of those barriers mm. for us. It gave us the opportunity to pick up and acquire a lot of the brands that we had been courting and talking to for a long time, but we're like on the 99 yard line. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That was like the catalyst that kind of got us over that, the, the goal line, as they would say, yeah. right? And so when opens in 18, you know, obviously still there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there, you know, we, once we elevated, we were able to acquire a lot of brands. We're still focusing on our digital expansion, web, which is a big part of our business. And, mm. you know, for us, we think it's obviously, as we all know, it's like the wave of the future, it's, right? Yeah, People are going boring. less and less to brick and mortar, right? more and more to like the ease of ordering online and mm-hmm. even deliver deliveries. And so once we opened the win, you know, we kind of thought we're thinking about other markets. And I was at an event in New York and, you know, at the time, Calabasas was obviously Yeezy was doing stuff mm-hmm. with Calabasas, mm-hmm. like people rapping about it, mm-hmm. like Calabasas is having this moment. I meet a couple of guys at this event that own a store called The Kingdom, and they're telling us that they have a store in Calabasas that's basically, they sell Gucci, St. Laurent, but it's hmm. handbags and purses at the time. They've since expanded into apparel. Right. They just tell me about Calabasas, and I'd always thought like, well, there's no stores in Calabasas, right? Hmm. And mind you, you know, all the major footwear brands at the time are really focused on LA and New York as right. That's key the, cities. that's the story. That's where all the events are happening. That's, all the marketing dollars. That's absolutely. where you know the you know core sneaker consumer is, or the brunt of mm-hmm. them in their eyes, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's everything is about the LA territory. If you want to open another store, it's got to be in LA. Mm-hmm. Like that's what we're looking. That's where you know corporate is saying that's where we want pairs to focus. Yeah. But for you, how does that make sense? So L.A. proper never really made sense to us because there was just a lot of distribution there for yeah. everything, right? Like A lot name, of the same same. Yeah, like you name a brand and they've got 12 points of distribution. And granted, the market can support it. But for me, it was always like, why would I want to go, you know, get in a sword fight with either friends that have stores there <laughs> or guys that are like Barneys that are bigger than me? Mm-hmm. It just never seemed like it made sense. So, I, you know had this idea about Calabasas and I was actually talking to our sales manager uh, from Nike, Ruth, and she had mentioned Calabasas as well and said that, you know, said that there's no one in the area. It might be a good area. So I go out there to check it out and there's one complex where the kingdom is, which is a Caruso property that is the best complex in the city, in my opinion. And I started emailing them cold and I'm not getting any responses. Hmm. Luckily, I call Rich, who did our our, our deal at the win. And again, this guy's super connected <laughs> in real estate. I mean, his company, he owns his own company now, but they know everybody. He just calls the vice president at Caruso. <laughs> like, and in like 48 hours, it has information for me. And it's like, this space Come is available. On. And mind you, I had taken like three months, you know, trying to figure shit out. And yeah. I'm frustrated at this point. You know, I know that there's probably other accounts looking at the market. Mm-hmm. And so finally, he actually ends up setting up and getting the deal done for us, which was awesome. Had to go through a long, extensive approval process with the footwear guys. Ended up getting the approval. Opened up Calabasas in November of 19. Closed in March when, <laughs> when this, 
COVID. When this crazy thing called the pandemic hits yeah. for the first time, yeah, we shut our brand new store down that had been open for four months that wow. we invested all this money in. It just shuts down. And, you know, as you guys know, California and New York were two of the hardest hit areas. They, so they, mm-hmm. they didn't open nearly as fast as Vegas, but we obviously were shut down. We were getting some great traction. Yeah. We were excited. And then everything shuts down, right? Yeah, the world shuts complete, down. Oh, yeah. And so in, you know, true feature form, as that had happened, we just moved into like a 22,000 square foot DC. And that was, I think, in February. We, but in Feb, we started moving in. And then COVID hit in March. And so now I'm sitting oh here, goodness. like everyone else, I've got three stores at this point that are staffed, right? Yeah. And you got staff asking questions like, well laying us off what are we doing oh my goodness and so i meet with my business partner i'm like look all right it's march you know how long can we keep Mm -hmm. our staff moving we Mm -hmm. just moved into this big dc we need a lot of help setting it up right mind you our previous warehouse was four thousand square feet right so this is five times the size you know different animal right i mean this thing's huge right (laughs) and so i have a conversation with my business partner and i'm freaking out Mm -hmm. right i think Mm -hmm. everyone was freaking out yeah yeah all my friends were freaking out that are in this industry. Everyone was like, "What? What? What's going on? Like, what? Like, what do we do? Like, right. is inventory coming? Yeah. Are our brands gonna extend terms? Mm-hmm. Or like, what? Like, everyone is. You know, freaking no one out. knows what's yeah, happening. Yeah. Right? Everyone's having meetings internally, trying to understand the best course of action and the best path. So I mean, my business partner were like, "Well, hey, let's have a team meeting because this is mm-hmm. you know a really unique situation. Mm-hmm. You have." People are freaking out too, just from a health perspective, yeah, right? Absolutely, they don't even know if they want to show up to work. Yeah, and, and this is this is early in in COVID, right? So it's like there's a lot of unknowns yeah. on all fronts. Yeah. So we decide that we can keep everyone employed until at least April 31st, right? Mm. So it's like two months, mm-hmm. you know, like that's we can commit that. Yeah. You know, with yeah. with not knowing what's happening. What's happening, right? So we have this big team meeting and. Know, my my business partner said it best is it like this isn't a one size there's no one size fits all solution no for no one knows <laughs> for this scenario right mm-hmm. because you know employee a might live with his grandparents so his situation is employee different than employee b who lives alone and doesn't care and isn't freaked out because he doesn't believe in viruses whatever the case may be yeah so we have this big team meeting and we say look man there's no judgment anyone that you know, wants to to quit or, you know, we're fully supportive, know our feelings, Mm -hmm. do what you got to do. Anyone that wants to work, we're going to move you to HQ. Hmm. We're going to run two shifts, an eight to four, four to midnight. We're going to limit the amount of people around. Like, we're going to do all these things to try to get through this, right? Yeah. And so we had, you know, five or six guys decided to leave and, Mm -hmm. you know, we still talked to them. Some of them came back after things kind of subsided, but we moved everyone into the warehouse and here we are, building this warehouse, which was awesome because next thing you know, web explodes. Online goes Just crazy. Explodes. And in online, it all has always been a key focus for us. So mm-hmm. a lot of boutiques online is secondary to their brick and mortar. For us, online is as important, if not more important, because we think long-term future play. That's where it's at. Online is everything, right? Mm-hmm. And so our web, like, really explodes, right? <laughs> and you know, thank God we had this, these 25, 20, 25 people from the stores working in the warehouse because we would have never been able to fulfill the orders. Yeah. We would have wow. been up Creek without a yeah. battle. I, I mean, you know, what's so crazy about that period is like everyone thought that, um, 
everything was just going to stop, right? They thought people weren't going to spend. They thought, you know, this industry was going to, you know, they're like, oh, this is when sneakers are going to slow down. But it actually sped up. Like, people spent more money on sneakers. <laughs> yeah, and I think that, like, people were getting more money than they ever had mm-hmm. due to, like, extra funds mm-hmm. coming in through unemployment. Then there was this contraction of inventory, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, that would never sell before is all of a sudden selling out. <laughs> like, it's like Christmas as a retailer because you're like, all this product that I have to buy, you know, is working. You're like, yeah. this is amazing. And so web starts exploding. We have all the store staff that that's there to help, thankfully, right? Mm-hmm. So we get the warehouse set up. You know, we get get through that big brunt, and then you get to this next place, which is like, okay, stores can reopen. Mm. Now you're understaffed at the stores. You're mm-hmm. trying to figure it out, you know? So the COVID protocol procedures. Yeah, like how stuff. do you maintain, you know, like at the end of the day, we got to be open for right. business to operate, but you also have to look out for your employees. Like, mm-hmm. how do we make sure that our employees are as safe as possible and as comfortable as possible? Yeah. Because the last thing you want to be is, you know, one of those employ- employers that everyone's talking about. Like, these yep. guys don't give they a care. Yep. right? Yep, yep. And genuinely, like, our team is, it's decently sized now, but I consider us to be pretty small in terms of, like, we do care. Mm-hmm. You know, we constantly, as owners, are having conversations around team benefits you know launching 401k doing things to give you know health insurance all those things i think that's a big focal point for us and so you're trying to navigate all these things and even now right like now we have delta coming back yeah. you know mask mandates are back it's navigating them again again right, right? And you can never get comfortable with this this particular scenario um i mean even though with that though you you all are still you know, have a team approach to how you're handling this and pretty transparent with, with the team and staff. And even through this, um, you're still considering growth, right? Like you got some new opportunities on the horizon. We do. I mean, I think that for us, I think that, um, you know, I I like retail. Like I like stores. I think they're great. And I like, I think there's a lot of opportunities still, especially in our space and especially on the West Coast. Mm-hmm. And so I think for us, you know, although retail expansion is on our mind, it's definitely, you know, we want to make the right decisions and we're very strategic in where we try to open. Um, you know, when you get to the space where we're in, you know, there's two ways to kind of do it. You can, you know, we sell some luxury product now and we also sell, I mean, we sell an expansive assortment of, of product, right? Mm-hmm. And you have your own label, right? Yep. yep. We have our own, our own private label, which is a, which is big for us and we're, you know, growing. And so, you know, when we think about where we're going to open and we always have to be cognizant to this concept of can the market support mm. our full concept, right? Mm. And our full concept is selling our own product. It's selling the most coveted sneakers. It's selling luxury goods like Givenchy. It's selling product like Off-White right. and Palm Angels, but also brands like BBC and Ice Cream and Stussy, which mm. are heritage brands that aren't crazy expensive, but have tight, limited distribution, yep. um, you know, and there's still demand for them. So that's how we have to evaluate markets mm. when we're looking at things. And so, mm-hmm. you know, we're looking to expand slowly in, in the right way. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, well, you know, as we think about, like, you've been in this business for, for years now, and you've transitioned from other industries and come from, uh, you know, thinking you're going to work in finance. <laughs> when you think over your career 
at this point. You think of what you and your partners have been able to build with Feature, and you think of the storms that you've weathered and the ones you're going to weather in the future. Um, there's a lot of young people that are, you know, interested in your line of work and, you know, wherever they might be in Marquette, Michigan. <laughs> what advice would you give them um, as they start to think through their entrepreneurial lens of what they want to create? So I think that, I mean, there's a couple of things. One, ask the why hmm. always, because, you know, the hope is that you're dealing with somebody that was either A, in your shoes or has seen it before or has lived some sort of experience that's similar yeah. that's willing to help you because the why is help, mm-hmm. right? At the end of the day, that why will give you the fuel to make a decision as to what you're going to change in mm-hmm. order to get that yes or to f- grow your business or further your business along. Yeah. Um, a couple other things that I think resonate with me a lot is one is a saying, it's just no missed opportunities. Mm-hmm. I think that you know, when we constantly say this to our team, because you get to a place sometimes where your perception of yourself or your business is X. And so you don't look at Y. And you have to look at Y because Y might turn into something completely f-ing amazing <laughs> and awesome. But if you have blinders on because you you're not, you're thinking like, I'm going here. Mm-hmm. That can become a major issue. And so mm-hmm. we consistently preach no missed opportunities. At a minimum, have the conversation. At a minimum, evaluate everything. Mm-hmm. You know, it takes five minutes of your time. Don't instantly have those blinders on. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say a key to success, and this is just another saying that, you know, I've heard that resonates me with, is the most successful people that you see, one of the biggest keys to their success is they're working when you're not. Hmm. And... When you think about that, that's powerful. I'm not saying that you need to work 24 hours a day, right? But what I am saying is if you think that you're going to run a successful business, especially in the beginning, working 40 hours and you're going to get a nice car and, you know, like that's what I would call lightning in the bottle. And I'm sure it happens occasionally, but 99.9% of the time, that's not real. Mm -hmm. Like I work seven days a week and I still work seven days a week in some way, shape or form, Mm -hmm. as do does everyone I know that's successful in this industry, you know, they're taking a call on a Sunday morning. Yeah. They're recording a podcast on a Saturday morning, mm-hmm. right? Like that becomes extremely important to understand. And not necessarily like I, I always keep that in the back of my head because you got to remember, like it is hard work, mm-hmm. you know, and you will reap the benefits of that hard work. You just got to be willing to do it. Yeah, you know? there's no, and a lot of times there's no timeline on that, right? Just because you've been doing it for a certain amount of time doesn't mean you're like teed up to become like this, you know, giant great brand or the number one retailer or what have you, which is also, I think, important. Goes back to your first one of why did you start in the first place? And you got to remember that because mm-hmm. that's what's going to carry you through. And then I guess another big one for me is that business is always evolving, mm. right? Like, especially this industry. I mean, I remember when we first started, it was all about just being a sneaker shop. Now I feel like you got to be the whole kit and caboodle. You know, you got to be a mini Barney's. You got to be a one-stop shop for apparel, accessories, jewelry. I mean, we sell books, candles, fragrance, you know, and it's all really cool product and it's very curated, but our business has evolved to that, Mm. right? Like you're seeing that, you know, web wasn't a big deal when I first started. I mean, people had it and they did okay, but think about the evolution of the digital experience yeah. right over the last 10 years and so again it, and it ties back into that whole concept of you know 
you've got to be on top of your industry. You've got to make sure that you're staying on trends. You're understanding what's happening, but you don't have blinders on, right? Mm -hmm. Because those blinders will kill you. There's definitely guys in our industry that have been surpassed by guys like us because they were stuck in this one way of doing business or this one perception of what they needed to be doing. And now all of a sudden you're seeing the James Whitners and the politics and the onenesses and the creams and all these guys, you know, they're different. You know, game has changed. The game has changed and the game will always change, right? Constantly. Um, what's your mom think? I think, um, you know, my mom's obviously super proud of what we've been able to build. You know, I, I think that she's instilled so much in me by seeing her fight and the way that she was able to scrap her way to where she is. Um, she actually just retired. She lives in Vegas now. Oh, so awesome. it's been awesome that, you know, she comes over, I have a newborn, so she gets to spend a lot of time with her and enjoy that. But I think that, you know, watching my mom grow up is what really gave me this scrappiness and, you know, the ability to persevere. So, um, but overall, I think she's really proud of both me and my brother. So that was Ajay Bori owner of Streetwear Shop Feature in Las Vegas. Find out more about Ajay and get access to all of our episodes at Amazon Music. If you'd like to connect with us, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Claim Us Stories. Our show this week is produced by BJ Fergozo, original music, production, and scoring by Adrian Anaya, and vocals provided by Priscilla. And special thanks also to VDOT, Professor H, Jordan Dinwiddie, Nick Pop, Lily Lynn, Nicole Early, Becky Mathai, and Amin L. Falele. I'm Bima, and you've been listening to Claim Us Stories. Claim us stories.